Um, we're in the middle, actually more than half done, with a series on the book of Titus. Uh, so if you can go ahead and turn your Bibles there. We've been looking at uh, what I've determined to be uh, nine keys for the church that are found in the book of Titus. Because if you remember, Titus was written by Paul to his associate Titus to help him uh, to understand what are the main things we've got to have in place if we're going to be a healthy church, if we're going to be Christians who are mature and following Jesus. And I think there's at least nine lessons for us from this book, and we've been working our way through. And so far, we've seen mostly lessons that are focused on what goes on in here, what goes on among us in the church, um, you know, rightly so, because this is a guide for the church. And we've seen that God says, first of all, you need to put God first. It's his church. It's his salvation. It's all about him. It's not about us. And so we've got to put him first. Uh, we need to appoint elders Godly elders who will lead the church well. We've got to teach the truth, not falsehood. We've got to make disciples, that is passing it on to the next generation. And then last week we saw that we need to live under grace. That is, that recognize that that same grace that saved us is the grace that enables us to live lives of obedience to Christ. Well, today we're going to change the perspective a little bit and see, well, well, what does it mean for us to be a church that lives in the world? Um, because we don't just exist as a group of people who um, just sit around and stare at each other. We're, we're, we're in the world. There's, there's a world out there. And we have to ask that question of how do we live in that world? What's our orientation towards the world? Uh, and, and there's a couple different ways that our hearts naturally gravitate towards when we think about the world. Uh, I experienced this this week. I was reading uh, Thursday's paper, just the front page. Looked at it, saw a story uh, about uh, a young girl in Pekin who uh, was having a, fun a funeral for her because she had died of uh, alcohol poisoning, a teenager. And I thought, man, I'm really afraid of the world. I don't want that to happen to my kids. You know, I, I don't. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Um, you know, they can just take somebody out, and I'm afraid of the world. I don't want to deal with it. And that's one of the responses that we can have towards the world. We can say, I'm afraid of it. Uh, I'm going to isolate myself from it. I'm going to try to protect myself from it. I'm going to fear the world and not get involved. Um, I believe just above that, on the front page, I also read a story about some developments that are going on downtown in Peoria. Uh, and they were discussing a couple businesses. Uh, one of them is Brown Bag Video, which is one of those so-called adult stores. I don't know what's so adult about it, but... Um, seems kind of juvenile to me, but these adults, uh, video store, uh, right next door to Club 307, which is some sort of swingers club, uh, and I thought, wow, there's a lot of scum out there. There's a lot of bad stuff out in the world, and, and instead of being afraid of it, I just wanted to condemn it. So why don't we just get rid of places like that? Uh, why does that have to exist? And so you can fear the world, if you want to run away from it, isolate yourself from it, you can condemn the world, just want to burn it up and say, you know, get rid of all those people out there. But neither of those are the response that God calls us to as his church. Because um, neither of those are the attitude that God himself has towards the world. I'm sure many of you remember John 3.16. Many of you know John 3.16. What does God do? It says, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Don't you remember 
John 3.17, but it continues and says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what is, God, what is God's attitude and actions toward the world? Well, he didn't, he didn't fear the world. He didn't stay away and isolate himself from the world, say, I'm not going to get involved in that broken mess. I might die. He didn't, uh, he didn't condemn the world and stay off in the distance and just say, well, you know, I'm sorry, you're on your own. He had an attitude of love. God loved the world that compelled him to action. He sent his only son so that Jesus Christ would live for us and die for us. And, and in that atoning death, we could be saved and not condemned. So that's what God did for the world, and that's what he calls us to do for the world. He calls us to love the world. And that's the sixth key for the church. That's what we're going to look at today in the book of Titus. We're going to have the attitude of love for the world that leads us to action. So if you're looking in Titus, in chapter 3, we're going to look at mostly the first two verses, but I'll read the first five for us. Titus 3, 1 through 5. And the first two verses focus on the action that we do, this demonstration of love for the world. And the last few verses, 3 through 5, help us to see what the attitude is or how we get the attitude of love. So Titus 3. Remind them <clears throat> to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we've seen this passage, and we don't see a lot of uh, explicit uses of the word love, but we see in this passage is a description of what love looks like. In the first two verses, we see these descriptions of what it means for us to love the world, just in practical terms, and in the last few, three through five, we see where that attitude comes from for us to love the world. And what I want to present to you today are two ways from this passage in which we can love the world. The first one is we love the world by being a good citizen. And the second one is that we love the world by being a good neighbor. Okay. So we love the world by being a good citizen. And I want to start with the actions, because what we see in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. So the first action that we see uh, for, for how we love the world is that we obey sacrificially for the good of others. Uh, this is the way it usually works. Uh, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you know, there are rulers and authorities. There are governing authorities. You know, uh, for him it would have been emperors and appointed officials. For us it's elected officials, federal, state, local, police officers. There's, there's people who have authority, governing authority, and it's our responsibility as Christians to submit to them, that is to acknowledge their authority, and to obey them to do what they tell us to do. And this is an expression of love for the world. Now that might seem like a stretch for you. You might think, uh, when I think of the government, the last word that comes to mind is love. Uh, especially as we get closer to April 15th. Um, but I'm not, I'm not really talking about our relationship toward the government. I'm talking about our relationship to the world, to everyone else. And one way in which we express our love for the world is by submitting to governing authorities. Because governing authorities are a gift from God 
for the public good. Uh, I can say that because what the Bible says. Um, in Romans 13, Paul expounds on this, uh, this little verse a little bit more. We don't get a lot of background in Titus. But in Romans 13, Paul says the same thing. He fleshes it out and he tells us that governing authorities are a gift from God for the public good. Let's go ahead and read it for you. Romans 13.1 says something very similar. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay? So, governing authorities are given by God as a gift. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Okay? So the governing authorities instituted by God for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also must pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So here's the idea. God has given us the governing authorities. He's instituted them. And the general idea is that governing authorities are there for our good. That is to protect the public good by enforcing laws that restrain evil. And one of the things that the government requires in order to do that is taxes. Okay? That was verse 7 there, that we're supposed to pay taxes to them. Now, when we submit to the governing authorities, we're demonstrating love to the world because we're obeying the governing authorities for the public good. All right. Let me give an illustration that you're all going to hate me for. Um, like I said, it's tax season, right? Okay, so I was doing taxes. Um, filling out my Illinois 1040, and uh, there's this line on the Illinois 1040 that was, that's new this year. It's not a new tax, but it's a new line. Uh, and it says, uh, it's called the use tax. Familiar with this? The use, U-S-E, use tax. Uh, it's, uh, it's been on the books, apparently, since 55, but they're just starting to uh, put it out there now because it's a tax that's required for you to pay. Um, it's essentially like a sales tax. Like if you buy stuff over the Internet or mail order and you don't pay sales tax on it, you're required to report what you've paid. Um, I'll just I'll read you a description of it here. It says the use tax is a sales tax that you, as the purchaser, owe on items that you must that you buy for use in Illinois. That you buy for use in Illinois. If the seller does not collect at least 6.25% sales tax, you must pay the difference to the Illinois Department of Revenue. The most common purchases on which the seller does not collect income, uh, Illinois use tax are those made via the internet from mail order catalog, or made when traveling outside of Illinois. You must keep your receipts when you make these types of purchases. And one of the examples they give is, say you go to Georgia and you buy some jewelry there and they've got a, a, you know, a lower sales tax and you bring it back to Illinois, you're supposed to figure out what the sales tax is in Georgia, the difference between Illinois' use tax and their tax, and pay the difference on your income tax. All right. I think this is a really stupid tax. Uh, I think it's really onerous. I think it puts a lot of burden on us to keep, you keep your receipts and, and figure out sales tax where you're buying things and you're paying tax not on purchasing something but using it in Illinois. I mean, I feel like this is the sort of thing that our founding fathers would like throw in with the Stamp Act and say, you know, we need to revolt uh, because of what you're doing here. Okay, I don't like it. Here's the deal. I've got to pay it, right? We've got to pay it because I believe Romans 13, 7. 
I believe Titus 3.1, that we're required to pay taxes. And, and, and beyond that, not just we're required to, but we're required to do it because we love the world. Because we love teachers and firefighters and public servants enough to pay their salaries. Because we love the world enough to do our fair share in sustaining public services. You know, because we love the world, we pay taxes. We submit to governing authorities because they're there for our good. We don't obey just when it's convenient, but we do it always. That's what we're called to do as Christians because we love the world. Of course, it's not just for taxes. There's a whole bunch of laws. I'm sure you could list your favorite ones that you think are stupid and restrictive and just make your life a little bit harder. But the point is, it's not up to us to determine which laws we're going to obey or not. If we really love the world, we respect the governing authorities and obey them for the public good. Okay, that's the general rule. But there's exceptions. But there are exceptions. Exceptions are exceptions, right? They're not the general rule, so that's the general rule. Please don't run into the exceptions. Feel, feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of the general rule. We have to obey the governing authorities. Okay, now, exceptions. There's exceptions. The exception is this. We can disobey sacrificially for the good of others. So when we obey, we're obeying sacrificially. It might not be comfortable for us, but we're doing it for the good of others. When we disobey, we're also doing it sacrificially for the good of others. See, all authority is given by God, but all authority has limits also that are given by God. And so we can say with Paul and James in Acts 5.29 that we must obey God rather than man. So if the governing authorities tell us to do something that is against what God commands, well then we can disobey. Um, an example of this, it's going on right now. Uh, I hope you've been following the news some, and you've been seeing all the things that are happening in the Middle East, right? It's a lot of rebelling against authority that's happening. It's not a bad thing. Uh, in Libya this week, you know, Gaddafi ordered attacks against his own people. He ordered his pilots to go bomb their own cities. And you had pilots who ejected out of their airplanes, crashed their planes, or flew to other places, defected. In, instead of or obeying the order that their commander gave them to kill innocent people, they disobeyed because they had to obey God rather than man. Okay? Those are the sorts of exceptions that we're talking about here. We're not talking about cheating on your taxes because you just want a little bit more money. Right? We're not talking about some people who I've seen who proclaim that downloading music illegally is a form of civil disobedience because you're sticking it to the man. Well, no, you're just being greedy. Um, you see, we're talking about disobedience that's sacrificial for the good of others because it's what you're obeying what God commands you to do and not man. Um, this is like a man named uh, Saeed Musa. He's uh, an Afghani Christian. Uh, not many of those. Um, he's 45 years old. He was arrest arrested last May for the crime of being a Christian. Um, and he was sentenced to death because that's the penalty. And so the, the authorities there, they asked him um, to deny Christ. The authorities said, you need to deny Jesus. And he said, no, I'm not going to. You know, that's the sort of disobedience they were talking about. That's what the exceptions look like. Now, praise God, in the last few days, this guy's been released. And that's wonderful. 
There's many more like him all over the world. Our brothers and sisters who are faced with this, uh, this question, should I obey a God or should I obey a man? Should I renounce Christ and be safe? Or should I acknowledge Christ, sacrificially lay my life down um, to honor God and to demonstrate for others the love of God that he has for them? That's what we're talking about in the exceptions here. We're talking about uh, a Northwestern student who uh, last August was arrested in Chicago for praying outside a Planned Parenthood clinic. Which, first of all, wasn't illegal, but anyway, he got arrested for it, and he was, he's put himself out there willing to be jailed, have something go on his permanent record, because he cared enough about the unborn children that he would sacrifice his own clean record and, and get thrown in jail because he wanted to make a statement and, and he wanted to actually pray for the help of those unborn children. We disobey, sure, we can disobey governing authorities, but it's out of love, okay? Because we love the world. See, the bottom line is that we love the world, and we can do that by being a good citizen, which usually means obeying the governing authorities, but sometimes means disobeying. Now, it's hard. Um, it's hard to do this. That's the action, but how do we get the attitude to do that? And the attitude, folks, comes from the gospel. You can see the gospel frees us from self-concern. Um, if you look at verse 3, back in Titus, chapter 3, this is a description of what you were before you were saved. It says you were, you were foolish, you were disobedient, you were led astray. And I want to key on this phrase. You were slaves to various passions and pleasures. See, before you were a Christian, you were a slave to your passions and pleasures. That is, your, your primary orientation was towards yourself and towards how you could please your own passions and please, your own, uh, your, please yourself. You were primarily concerned about yourself. So, when you're confronted with a situation... Uh, where the government asks you to obey, and it's going to cost you something. It's not going to hurt anybody if you obey, except you. You'd say, well, if I can get away with it, I'm just not going to do it. If I can get away with it, I'm not going to do it, because I, I need to please myself. I need to take care of myself. There's no way I'm going to pay these taxes. They, they don't know how much I bought on the Internet. They don't know that I bought this thing in, in Indiana, and it cost less. You know, nobody's going to know. I don't have to do that. I'm just going to please myself. I deserve to have that money. I deserve to do this. No what we were before. Or, or when we were confronted with the opportunity to help someone, to disobey the government, to great cost to ourselves for the good of another, we'd say, heck no. I mean, I'm sorry for you that you're in such a bad situation, but I'm not going to put my neck out for you. How does that serve my passions and my pleasures? But the gospel comes in. God comes in and he shows his loving kindness for us and he rescues us from our self-concern. He rescues us from that slavery to ourselves so that now when we're confronted with an opportunity to do good, uh, to obey the governments for the good of others, we'll do it, no matter what the cost. We can pay our taxes. It's just money. We've got Jesus. You know, when, when we're confronted with a chance to disobey the government for the good of others, we can do it. We'll go to jail. We've got Jesus. Okay? When we're satisfied with Christ, it empowers us to be the best citizens the world has ever seen. But that's not all. Because we love the world by being good citizens, but we also love the world by being a good neighbor. You know, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, uh, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, we get a, some nuts and bolts of what it really looks like to love our neighbors. Um, I want you to notice 
the scope of the commands here in Titus 1 and 2, 3, 1 and 2. Uh, he says, be ready for every good work. For every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. So what he's talking about here is, is how we interact with everybody. How do we interact with the world? And the interesting thing is, it's the exact opposite of how you would act towards an enemy. Everything that's commanded here of how we act towards the world, it's the opposite of what you would expect to do if the world were your enemy. The first thing is he says, be ready to do good for others. It's in verse 1. And what he's really talking about here, notice he doesn't say do every good work for others, but be ready to do good work, which means that he's talking about a, a disposition in our hearts, as we have a predisposition to do good for others. Um, this is not what you do for your enemy. When, when you have an enemy, your predisposition is to do bad for them. Like you're, you're looking for opportunities to make life harder for them. But what, what we're saying here is you're looking for opportunities. You're, you're just eager. You're, you're ready for every good work that no matter who it is that the opportunity is to serve, you're there. You're serving them. You know, your enemy uh, falls down uh, on the ice. You run over there. You, you pick them up. You care for them. You know, it's somebody across the street needs their driveway clean. You, you just go do it. Um, you know, someone that you have a, a long-standing grudge against gets sick and they have medical bills. You start the fundraiser to help pay for those things. Like, you're looking for opportunities to help others, to do good. Because the world's not your enemy. We're called to love the world. Same thing with number two here. So we're ready to do good for others, but we also don't speak badly of others. Now what do we do towards our enemies? How do we speak about our enemies? You know, our, our culture says, our, our world says, our political discourse says, if you've got an enemy, you speak badly about them. You find, you know, you find something that they said, then you take it in the worst possible way, and then maybe you add a little bit to it to make it sound even worse, and you vilify your opponents, you make your enemies sound so bad, because the point is to destroy your enemies. But what are we allowed to do? We're allowed to speak evil of no one. You know, that word to speak evil, it's literally blaspheme. It's, it's to, 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 to slander, to malign, to tear down. We're not allowed to do that of anyone. Rather than speaking evil of our enemies to destroy them, our goal is to speak good of them. Because the world's not our enemy. Now this doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people. This doesn't mean that we can't tell, uh, especially non-Christians, that we disagree with their way of life or we disagree with what they're doing, but, but the intent makes all the difference. Okay? The difference is that when you have an enemy, you're trying to tear them down to destroy them, but when you have uh, someone that you love in the world, you disagree with them, but you're doing it to restore. The third is like it. Be gentle with others. Verse 2, and here I've grouped three things together. He says, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy or humility toward all people. You know, these are three phrases that characterize the way that we act towards others, and it's the exact opposite of what you do for an enemy. When you've got an enemy, you fight them. You fight them, you take them out before they can take you out. But he says, don't quarrel, don't be a brawler. 
know, when you got an enemy, you, you use every advantage you can to put yourself ahead of them so that they can't take advantage of you. But Paul says, no, be gentle and show perfect, absolute courtesy and humility towards them. And if you do that towards the enemy, you get walked all over. What we want to do is we want to fight, we want to subdue, we want to win the culture war. We want to take the world out because they're the enemy. No, they're not. The world's not the enemy. We're not called to destroy them. We're called to love them. We think sometimes that we can argue people into the kingdom of God. Uh, That if we just have the right arguments, if we just maybe even speak loud enough, that we can convince people to follow Jesus. You know the old adage that a man convinced against his will remains of the same opinion still. Um, That's not how it works. We don't fight people into the kingdom of God. We don't destroy them. We love them in. Again, that's really hard, isn't it? Which is why I'm so thankful that God doesn't just give us commands to do and then say, go do them. He gives us the gospel and the power to obey. You see, the attitudes that come... Uh, the attitudes that empower these actions all come from the gospel. The first way this happens is that the gospel humbles us. See this in verse 3. You know, verse 3 gives this list of, of what the world looks like. It says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a description of what the world's like. And if that's all we had, it'd be really easy for us to stand here and say, What horrible people. Look at those horrible people. They're so foolish. They're so disobedient. They're so hateful. They hate everybody. They're filled with malice. All they do is tear people down. We should just condemn them and write them off and not care about them at all. Yeah, and we would do that if he didn't start verse 3 with, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. See, we're just like them. The difference between us who believe in Jesus and them who are still entrapped in this sort of behavior is that we have believed the gospel. It's not that we're better people, it's that we've had our eyes opened up. I can't repeat this enough. The world is not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. We're not out to destroy and tear down non-Christians. They are just like us. The difference is that they are deceived. Look at verse 3. They're led astray. You know, we used to be led astray or deceived. Who does that? The devil does that. They're enslaved to passions and pleasures. Who is enslaving them? The devil is doing that. That, That's what we were. We're not better people. We're not people who can sit on a high horse and say, we've got it all together. Look at us, how we've made our lives so good. I condemn you, people who run brown bag video. I condemn you. You're horrible. Just get wiped off the face of the earth. No, we love them. We love them because the gospel humbles us. And it says, the real enemy is Satan. Like, if you're fighting in a war, and there's a POW camp, and those folks are uh, laboring, you know, because they're forced to, to produce goods for the enemy, you don't go bomb the POW camp. You defeat the enemy and liberate the prisoners so they don't have to do that anymore. And that's what we do. We're called to love the world. Because Jesus loved us. The second thing that the gospel does for us is that the gospel fills us with love. It fills us with love. It's verse 4 and 5. 
It's great news. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Folks, my, my temptation is not so much to condemn the world, um, but to isolate myself from the world because I just don't feel like I have enough resources to deal with it. Um, maybe that comes from being an introvert. Probably more likely it comes from being a sinner. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like I just, it's going to cost too much. You know, the people in the world, they really are like this, foolish, disobedient, slaves of passions and pleasure, hurting people, hating people. It's just, it's really hard to, to love the world, the real people out there like that. And I think, well, I just don't have the resources to do it. Where do we get the resources to do that? You know, I, I, could, be, I could selectively be ready for some good works, um, but be ready for every good work, I just don't have. I don't have that. Um, I can be humble and gentle sometimes, uh, but always, perfectly. Where do I get that love? Well, it comes from the gospel. See, it's not that we've got a finite canister of love and that, and that we, we, you know, if I love this person, they're going to take it all and I've got nothing left for anybody else. You know, they're just going to take, take, take. Well, at the same time that they're take, take, taking, God is give, give, giving to us. The love that he showed us in the cross, the loving kindness that God poured out to us, he hasn't stopped loving us. And he continues to give us the love that we need to love those needy people. Um, when we were living in Bolingbrook, which is uh, a few years ago now, um, we had a neighbor lady who was going back to school because uh, her husband was away a lot. She had kids and she was trying to uh, improve herself, get a better job. And uh, so she's taking a math class and she'd heard that I was an engineer. And so she came over one night, knocked on the door and asked for some help with her math homework. Um, and uh, I don't remember the details of how I felt that night. Um, I could tell you generally, I probably didn't want to do it. I usually don't want to do that sort of thing. Like, I don't, I don't want to help people. I don't. I'm a so, I'm sinner. Got it? Um, you know, in my bad hours, I don't want to help people. And, and so, you know, I, it, it probably hadn't been a horrible day. It probably just been a normal day. A normal day, driving through traffic in Chicago and paying tolls and going to work and finally home to my family. just want to be home with my family, right? Can anybody relate to this? And she knocks on the door and says, can you help me with my, my math homework? And so, yeah, so... My normal response would want to be to, to hide, like to pretend I'm not home. Quick, turn on the lights, you know, don't, don't she's coming over. Uh, or you know, claim to be busy or what. Okay, but that night, for some reason, the love of God was in my heart. Okay? And he empowered me to, to leave my home, to go next door, and to work for probably an hour doing algebra. Um, which is okay, but if you want to be with your family, it's not the best thing. Um, and, and, I, and I share that story. Um, certainly not because I want to be thought of as a hero, because, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like the dumbest thing in the world. Oh, great, you helped a lady with algebra. Good job. Um, no, but, but to point out that that's, the, that, that that's the point. That is the point. God is not calling us necessarily to these extraordinary things. He's calling us to simple, everyday obedience. This is how you love your neighbor. This is how you love the world, right? God fills your heart with love for people when a woman knocks on your door and, and you know her story. You know that she's struggling. You know that, um, that her husband is gone all the time and she's got these kids and she's trying to go back to school and, and she needs your help. You know, you've been filled with the love of God. God has poured out such love for you. God has given you such patience and such forbearance and such mercy. How, how can you say no to that? You know? You've received the love of God and that love overflows to help other people and really common, everyday sort of things. 
And that's what we're trying to get to, where our predisposition towards the world is one of love. Not fear, not condemnation, but love. Do you guys remember those Chilean miners who were trapped last year? Remember them? They were underground for like 60, 69 days. Um, there were 33 of them. They were underground for 69 days. They were about 2,000 feet below the surface. It's a horrible situation. The world was tuned in. It was dominating the news cycle. Um, well, eventually they got out because the people who were rescuing them took time to, you know, they, they sent down food and supplies and everything they needed. It took time to figure out how, how can we get these people out, and they got them out, all of them. It was great. Um, well, I had a friend of mine in seminary who was pontificating on this when it happened. And he said, you know, when, when people get trapped in a mine, there's three things you can do. I'm sure there's more than three, but for the sake of illustration, there's, there's three things you can do. So one thing you could do is you could just walk away. You know, you could just say, well, I'm sorry, you're duck, stuck in the mine. Um, I don't really want to get involved. I'm just going to walk away and take care of my own life and, uh, and hopefully not get dragged down into the problem with you. Uh, or you could blow, blow it up. You know, you could put a bunch of explosives on top of the mine and, and blow it up, and, and you might feel like you've accomplished something. Um, it might be fun, but you'll probably kill everybody uh, inside. Uh, or you can take the time you know, to figure out how to get them out well. You can send in supplies. You can love the people who are trapped in the mine by giving them the food and the water they need and then figuring out how to get them out and then pull them out. And that's what they did, and that's great. And those are the choices that we have, too. You know, we'll just end with this. You know, the, the world just like you and I were, is stuck in a mine. You know, they're, they're trapped. They're deceived by Satan. They're enslaved uh, to their passions and pleasures. They're in trouble. And we can fear them. We say, we don't want to get stuck in your trouble. Again, we don't want to get dragged down with you, and so we're just going to isolate ourselves. We're just going to walk away. I hope you can get out, um, but we're just going to, we'll, we'll be over here uh, taking care of ourselves. Um, we can fear the world. We can condemn the world. We can lob our grenades. We can pile our explosives on them and say, you know, you're horrible people over there and, and, and we'll, we can just get it off our chest and it might make us feel better. It might make us feel like we're accomplishing something. But it's just going to kill them. You know? We can condemn the world. Or we can love the world. We can recognize their situation. We can do our best to figure out how it is that we can help them to see what we have seen, to be rescued from the pit like we've been rescued from the pit. And in the meantime, commit ourselves to sending in food and water, to loving them, to maintaining relationships with them, to doing everything we can to help them. Because we love the world. Because Jesus loved the world. Jesus didn't come in the world to condemn the world. He came in the world to save the world. And he left us in the world to save the world. See, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If we've received that everlasting life, then we should be filled with love to pass that love on to others. And if you've not received that gift of everlasting life, I want you to know that Jesus does not condemn you, but calls you to put your faith in him and experience that everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, in some ways I feel 
as if I've laid on my own shoulders and on our shoulders as a church an infinite obligation? Uh, how could we ever do this? Uh, how could we ever completely love the world and yet, your gospel provides us with infinite power and infinite resources to do it. So, God, I pray that we would be up to the task. I pray that we would understand your gospel and the great love that you've given us so that it just becomes a part of us. And when we see the hurt and the need of those who don't have you, that we would recognize that they're not the enemy. That we would trust in you and lay our lives down for them so that whether it's through being a good citizen or being a good neighbor or whatever you have for us, that we would demonstrate your love for them and that you would indeed bring people out of the pit, saving them, giving them new life in you. Lord, we pray for your power. In the name of Jesus, amen.